0: Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the
1: podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to like perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast.
2: Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. We begin in 1936 with a revolving steel door standing two stories tall.
1: It would have blown away anybody who went through the doors of it, especially in the Toronto of the mid to late 1930s.
2: The weight of the Great Depression still hung over Toronto, but this building told a different story.
1: It was money enshrined in architecture. It was money speaking a statement, gilded fixtures in the bathrooms, mosaics and sculptures and beautiful colored stone and set all over the place.
2: The palatial opulence was like something out of the Great Gatsby. But this palace was built to house the newly-minted Globe and Mail. And its founder was something of a Gatsby himself.
1: He was a millionaire before he turned 30.
2: His initials, GM, are embedded in the paper's moniker. But his own name has been largely forgotten.
1: you probably never heard of George McCullough because he's been deliberately erased from Canada's history.
2: George McCullough was a high school dropout from London, Ontario. But at the height of his power, he had the ear of prime ministers and monarchs and an entire nation.
1: McCullough is Gatsby, a Horatio Alger character, Gordon Gecko, Charles Foster Kane.
2: And like all these larger-than-life men, George McCullough had an insatiable appetite for power.
1: He advocated for one-party government in Ottawa and at Queen's Park. And for a while, he tried to convince Ontario's leaders to ditch democracy because partisanship got in the way of decision-making.
2: George McCullough's influence in politics and media reverberate to this day. But how did a man so powerful plummet so far into obscurity?
1: In those days, there was no mercy in Canadian society for anyone who needed psychiatric help. And McCullough struggled alone and in secret.
2: Author and historian Mark Bury excavates McCullough's complicated rise and fall in his book, Big Men Fear Me. George McCullough's roots were astonishingly modest. Can you just sketch the circumstances that he was born into?
1: Yeah, they're modest even by the poverty of the times, and we live in a much wealthier Canada than the Canada that George McCullough grew up in. But his high school burnt down when he was 14, and he just quit. And he worked in a bank. Now, this is a time when a bank would hire a 14-year-old, which is boggling, but I guess he was a big kid, so he kind of looked older. And uh, then he wanted to be a newspaper reporter, and he came to Toronto, and the people at the Globe basically gave him a ticket to the CNE and said, have a good time. Would you like to sell newspapers? So he decided to do that. But of course, being George McCullough, he was so good at it that he became the best newspaper salesman that they ever had, wandering around Southern Ontario, knocking on farm doors and pitching the Globe to all these people in these towns, selling thousands of subscriptions. So he's a guy with a grade 8 education, gets a job as a financial reporter at the Globe when he's 21. So he's already been out in the workforce for six years. Hangs around there for a couple of years and gets fired. They say for smoking in a newsroom, which is something I've always had a hard time believing. Because when I was a kid, we smoked in the newsroom a lot. Anyway, he got fired in 1929 and within five years owned a brokerage firm that had 35 employees. In the worst years of the Depression. Incredible. And he's 31 years old when he buys the Globe and buys the Mail and Empire and puts them together into the Globe and Mail. And he's 41 years old when he buys the Toronto Telegram.
2: You say that McCullough was a Gatsby, a Horatio Alger character, a Gordon Gecko, a Charles Foster Kane. What is it about McCullough that persuades you that he is all of that?
1: There's an air of mystery about him. There's the looks. He's a good-looking man, very charming, living in a world of his own creation that he tries to sell everybody into believing is the reality of his life. And this grasp for power a man coming from really nothing in terms of social economic background or education and taking this huge lunge for power wealth and political power at the same time mm-hmm. in the span of 17 years he goes from being fired as a newspaper reporter to owning two newspapers the toronto telegram and the Globe and mail having a really clear shot at being prime minister of canada being a very wealthy man He owned a piece of the Toronto Maple Leafs, he owned a piece of the Argos, and he just blows through life so quickly, starting when he's 15 years old, selling newspapers and being dead when he's 47. He dies so young, so he's just sort of a shooting star who is constantly on the rise and then has a tremendous decline that results in his death.
2: You could also say he's kind of a Rupert Murdoch or a Ted Rogers or a Conrad Black or a Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk. You know, huge media ownership and political, even geopolitical influence and impact. If a myth is a story that is always happening, then this is one that's been happening in the modern age. Do you see George McCullough's story fitting into that kind of media mogul mythos?
1: I think it does. In most ways, part of the problem of fitting him into it exactly is that he's not as fixed in the world. He's not as well-educated as a lot of these other media moguls, and he he's almost sort of animalistic when he's buying up the globe. He does it more out of spite than anything. And as we go through the last century, we go from one hot new medium to another, and he's in this transition period from newspaper to radio, and he literally almost makes it to the TV age. He understands as he goes along the power that he has and what he can do with it. And when he starts to flex that power, it becomes quite frightening.
2: You described his material success and his wealth, you know, owning all these bits of all these things. But but when it comes to his political ambitions and his influence, what kind of circles did he travel in, you know, provincially, nationally, internationally?
1: Uh, provincially, he owed two premiers. Owned? He controlled the finances of Mitchell Hepburn when Mitchell Hepburn was the Liberal Premier of Ontario and then he switched his loyalty to George Drew, and he had so much control over what they did. I think when people realize what publishers, not just talking about McCullough, but also the publisher of the Toronto Star, what they could do behind the scenes and what they did do is quite shocking. People think media magnets today have this incredible power, and they do, but they're not standing in the side room of the premier's office when the premier's firing cabinet ministers that They want fired, and this is the kind of power that George McCullough has.
2: Or exchanging notes with the prime minister.
1: With the prime minister, it's a love hate thing where Mackenzie King is afraid of him and writes in his diary that it would be a good thing if George McCullough and Premier Hepburn died. And then, through the Bassett family in Montreal, he was introduced to the people around Winston Churchill. So he knew Beaverbrook, Lord Beaverbrook. He probably knew Churchill. He certainly knew Brendan Bracken, who was the guy who kept Churchill upright and looking fairly sober through the war. George McCullough was a media rock star. He was the most powerful, dynamic man in Canadian publishing. He was also a giant in the nation's sports world. McCullough moved easily among the elites of the Western world and though seen as a flawed man by those at the very top of Anglospheric governments, was feared and respected.
2: What does that say about him, That just that ability to have done that in such a short period, in such challenging circumstances?
1: I wonder if people who aren't aware of consequences can take those kind of risks because they just can't figure out what the alternatives are and aren't daunted by the concept of failure simply because they can't visualize it. That may be part of it. Part of it is a country that still had this feeling that you really could take these kind of risks and really make it, even if you came from nothing. Part of it was he was really good at making friends, and that should not sort of be underestimated where he connected with people who could really make a difference in his life. Several people that we would think of as mentors, angel investors, uh, people who were there with a checkbook who could just say, well, you want a building for this new Globe and Mail thing you're working on? Yeah, we'll build a building and buy a corner lot at King and Bay and build a building. That's the kind of world he lived in. It's a world of privilege. It's a world that's only open to white male Protestants of the time, but he takes full advantage of it.
2: But also, as you say, he was a very natural and good salesman, In his beginning days, can you talk about how good he was at selling newspapers?
1: Well, he's this kid, 15 years old, walking the back concessions, the gravel roads of southwestern Ontario, going up to farmers and saying, I bet you a Globe subscription that I can plow a straighter furrow than you. And he wins those bets. He works hard to be able to pull these kind of stunts. I suppose when you're traipsing up and down these roads, you have a lot of time to think. And his mind is just cooking like that all the time. To the point where they don't even want to lose him as a salesman. When he starts as a reporter, they cut his salary in half because he he sold so many newspapers and he made them so much money. And certainly a journalist was not worth that kind of money.
2: So how good was he selling himself as he started to move up in the world in Toronto?
1: He had a natural instinct for where the people were who could help him. So he got an appointment to the board of governors of the University of Toronto which is certainly a prestigious thing, but it's not the sort of thing that you would think would change your life. Except that when you're a young guy on the make like this, that room is going to have people with lots of money. It's going to have people with political connections, and it's going to give you the kind of prestige that you could use to open some doors. And that's precisely what he does with this one little appointment. This is this one little bone that Mitchell Hepburn threw him publicly. And because he got appointed to the board of governors of the University of Toronto, We have the Globe and Mail. Sometimes the threads are so thin, and yet he finds them and he follows them to where he wants to go. (music) Toronto used to be a town dominated by people from the British Isles. It was a place where laws against vice, everything from carrying an open bottle of liquor to opening a store on Sunday, were enforced with the law's full weight. Downtown Toronto was empty on weekends and at night. The city had very few restaurants. The best was on the top floor of the Eaton's department store, and it served English favourites, various types of roasted and boiled food.
2: You paint a picture of the time that he lived in as a time of profound... Change, including the fact that there are a number of key figures who come onto the scene, including himself, who are quite young, sort of a change in generations. Can you talk about how newspapers, you know, socially and culturally fit in or what, you know, how important they were in McCullough's day?
1: Newspapers were the way that people collected information that they needed. For instance, every lawyer in Ontario would subscribe to a newspaper just to know what the court of appeal was doing. Every merchant needed newspapers to know what things sold for, what was being shipped into the province. Farmers needed them to know what their crops would sell for. So everybody subscribed to them for those reasons, plus all the political coverage, the crime coverage, the the sort of things that we think of as news were on top of that. Radio was something else. Radio was theater on the air and sort of deeper dives into politics. McCullough would buy one-hour blocks of time on the CBC, on the entire national network, and do these one-hour speeches that he would give to everybody in Canada, almost literally, because everybody was listening to the CBC. The Globe and Mail
0: has been called an enemy of democracy, a vehicle for communism, a mouthpiece of fascism, the servant of the Roman Catholic Church, and the protector of the orange Protestants. In the House of Commons, a prominent Western liberal identified me as a gigolo to a mining millionaire. The communists also have had their say.
1: And if he couldn't do that, he would go on these big chains of stations that they would put together. So the media was smaller in number, but it was much more deeply embedded in people's psyche. There's no way you could do that now.
2: But how crucial were newspapers at the time, given the upheaval, all the change that was happening in the world at the time.
1: They were really crucial. They were the way that people got those explanations of what was happening in places like Germany and and Russia. Newspapers were big. They were fat. They had huge staffs. They sent people all over the world. Canadian papers did that. Foreign News was brought to Canadians by Canadian journalists in Canadian newspapers. They set the agenda politically in Parliament in Ottawa, in provincial legislatures. They were very dynamic. Even during the Depression, they were quite cheap, too. So people could afford them, and they passed them around. And a lot of families would subscribe to every newspaper in a, in a community. And in Toronto, when McCollum bought The Globe, there were four newspapers, The Globe, The Mail and Empire, The Telegram, and The Toronto Star. And a lot of families would subscribe to them all just to make sure they didn't miss anything.
2: So can you... Talk about what the actual birth of the new Globe and Mail offices was like. If, if we'd been around back then, what would we have seen?
1: We would have seen an Art Deco palace and it would have blown away anybody who went through the doors of it, especially in the Toronto of the mid to late 1930s. It was muddy. It was muddy enshrined in architecture. It was muddy speaking a statement, gilded fixtures, In the bathrooms, mosaics and sculptures and beautiful colored stone and set all over the place. It was money that was spent to show that the paper was more than just a product. It was something of importance and power and that the people who spoke through that newspaper were people of taste and elegance. The lobby of this news palace was designed to strike awe into visitors, whether they were advertisers, politicians, or curious tourists. McCullough commissioned six sculptures that represented the major industries of Canada. He had them installed over a revolving steel door that brought people into that lobby, which loomed almost two stories and was finished in glazed tiles with red sandstone brought in from Indiana. Those dazzling colors on the floor and walls were topped with a ceiling trimmed with gold leaf. But the real jaw-dropping space was off limits to the public unless they were invited, and anyone with any claim to power wanted to be. This little nirvana was the top floor, where McCullough's modern office, paneled and walnut, adjoined a suite of rooms that had a squash court and a fantastic bathroom with walls lined in black and white French granite. There was a kitchen and bedroom. The ceiling was gold leaf. The light fixtures were trimmed with gold. The newspaper building, the William Wright building, was a medium of expression in its own right, and it was meant to be seen. So if you were to, say, walk by a newspaper office in Toronto now, you would see a sign but that's not what you saw when you walked by that office. You would see windows where people could look in and see the presses turning. So it was money as a statement in its own right, money spent to say something about the spender.
2: Yes. What, what is it that he wanted the Globe and Mail to be that other newspapers in Canada hadn't been until then?
1: He wanted to bring the Globe up another tier. In, in Canadians had some good newspapers, some good solid papers. The Mill and Empire had been one sort of respectable paper. The Toronto Star was a fine metropolitan daily, but what he wanted to do was bring the Globe and Mail up into that league of the New York Times, the Times of London, that really rarefied level of journalism where journalists would go to work for the paper, even if they could make more money in the same city on another paper, just because it was so prestigious to work for a paper like that. Its reporters could never beat the clock. A morning paper like the Globe and Mail had a big disadvantage covering hard news, the stories about crimes and fires. Bad things tend to happen at night, and the Globe sent its first edition to press in the early evening. It had to have most of its copies printed and shipped in the middle of the night to be delivered to paperboys and shops before the city began to stir. So morning papers like the Globe and Mail, the Times of London, and the New York Times filled their pages with institutional news, politics, finance, court cases. It made them less interesting to most readers, but they covered things that wealthy, powerful people wanted to read about. The class gulf between morning and afternoon papers was so wide that King George V's personal physician dispatched the dying king with a shot of morphine and cocaine at a time that was convenient for the journalists of the morning times, rather than the shabby afternoon London papers.
2: He combined two newspapers into one, right?
1: Yeah, the Globe wasn't the better of the papers. The Globe was very much in decline, and the Mail and Empire was the good paper of the two. But once the paper was on its feet, the Globe and Mail was much more than the sum of its two parts. It became the paper that McCullough wanted it to be. It became a paper that had money to spend, that was open to ideas that weren't being shared by the original two papers, It was a paper that was very good in its political coverage, uh, very sports-oriented because McCullough was part owner of the Maple Leafs and the Argos and was into that sort of thing and and, and owned racehorses. So it became a truly great paper. And at one point, it was listed on the top 40 newspapers of the world list as a world-class paper.
2: It also became the first truly national paper, is it not?
1: It certainly had power all across the country. It was a national force in Ottawa. They weren't printing it in different plants across the country the way they do now, but it was a paper that people would even take a day late because it had stuff that nobody else had. And it had a weekend paper that was quite fantastic, and it was so good that you could say buy the Vancouver Sun or the Calgary Herald, but you would still take the Globe and Mail on top of that because it wasn't duplicating, it was adding to the uh, information menu. Toronto's new morning paper was brave, bold, and modern, with a unique name. The new paper would be called the Globe and Mail, with the same initials as its owner, GM.
2: You're listening to Ideas. We're heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America, on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also find us on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed.
1: The
0: newspaper which I published represents what had previously been a liberal newspaper and another which was conservative. It has been faithful to the principle which I expressed at the time those two papers were purchased.
2: George McCullough's swift ascent to power in the throes of the Great Depression was remarkable. Under his stewardship, the Globe and Mail established itself quickly as the player in Canada's media landscape.
0: The Globe and Mail would not be worthy of itself or of public confidence if it permitted a neutral or indifferent attitude to interfere with public duty.
2: But privately, George McCullough was suffering.
1: In those days, there was no mercy in Canadian society for anyone who needed psychiatric help, and McCullough struggled alone and in secret. As
2: his political influence grew, social tensions were also rising.
1: Inflation was rampant. Thousands of people were out of work because wartime industries closed. In those post-war flu pandemic years, Canada was polarized between the extreme right and extreme left, with new and powerful radicalism growing on both ends of the spectrum. Union activists and communists were firing up industrial workers.
2: And as Mark Bury writes in his biography of McCullough, Big Men Fear Me... The media mogul's preferred solution to the turmoil flew in the face of the democratic ideals of his newspaper.
1: A natural thread of logic, one that was often picked up by letter writers and published in the Globe and Mail, was that democracy itself was not working.
2: Why did he believe democracy, parliamentary democracy especially, or what he called partisanship, was a bad thing?
1: I think this is where we get into the effects of him leaving school early. His ability to use his social skills and his persuasive skills to make money and create these media outlets and things. And then when it gets down to actually using his mind to come up with coherent, logical, political ideas, we see this failure. We see this lack of education really coming through. So he starts buying into some of the simplistic political ideas that are floating around the states. An unemployment rate of almost 13% in a world where decisive leaders like Hitler were bringing jobless numbers back to pre-1929 levels showed McCall that the country needed an unconventional, strong leader. These issues vexed Canada's political leadership for years. People wanted the war to mean something and they wanted the new world that they believed they'd been promised. Their old world was gone, along with so many of their young men. And the tens of thousands of maimed men, people missing arms, legs, sometimes even faces, reminded everyone of the horror. At the same time, the Ku Klux Klan was recruiting in parts of rural Canada. Immigrants, immigrants, Black Canadians and Indigenous people were ground down by discrimination that often had the force of the law behind it. A lot of this is going to have some deja vu for people. In the 1930s, there were all kinds of snake oil salesmen in the States who were selling easy answers to complex problems. And these are people in media, they are people in radio, uh, people in religion, uh, people in politics like Huey Long, who basically said, the world's a crazy place, but if we just get rid of such and such people, which the Nazis were saying, or we get rid of these troublesome politicians, or we force people to work together, or we cut the bureaucracy or whatever, everything will be back to the way it was before this depression came along. This thing that we still, and we're talking about 1939, so it's been going on for 10 years in sort of varying shades of better or worse. Uh, we can't figure out what to do about this. Please, someone lead us. And People like McCullough, who probably heard way too many business luncheon speeches, just decided that that it was the idea of politics and people not working together that was the problem. In 1937, George McCullough talked Ontario Premier Mitch Hepburn and Tory leader Earl Rowe into ridding Ontario of the nuisance of parliamentary democracy. Other provinces, such as Quebec and Alberta, had already elected quasi-fascist regimes that used brute force and lawyers to cripple their opponents. But Ontario was the only province where political leaders actually made a deal to kill Westminster-style parliamentary democracy. McCullough and supporters of his scheme wanted a regime that got rid of what the Globe and Mail sneeringly called partisanship, but the rest of us would call democratic debate. I
0: have never chosen the rules in any game I wanted to play, whether it was in hockey, on the football field, or in public affairs. I am quite content to fight in the environment that exists. However, ladies and gentlemen... There is a serious side to this matter. All of you are concerned for it affects your lives, your happiness, and your future. It is a fundamental problem that has to be dealt with and corrected if we are to have good government and good leadership. Therefore, it is all important at this grave time in the history of our nation that we consider whether or not We are going to get decent men to take on the biggest job in the land, that of governing.
1: McCullough bought into this idea that we get rid of provincial governments and we'd be better off somehow, get rid of partisan politics in Ottawa, merge the Conservatives and Liberal Party, or have them form some sort of coalition government, and they would stop bickering, and somehow that would make the trains run on time and give people jobs. And none of it makes any sense. And the last person to figure that out was George McCullough, because when he starts a populist movement, he has everything going to make that movement work, except a solution. So people sign up, they send letters, he's running pages upon pages of The Globe and Mail, he's doing radio speeches on private networks and the CBC to push this thing, and it's all there and it's all happening. And when they have the big rally, the big sort of Citizen Kane moment, people are, are standing there going, well, what's the answer? You know, we all know the problem. He used his media platform, his newspaper and airtime he bought on radio stations across Canada, to start a national right-of-center anti-democratic populist movement that culminated just before the Second World War.
2: Is it accurate to say that he was after a kind of a one-party system?
1: Yeah. What he was after was government by the right kind of people. The right kind of people would be in a government that would maybe have two parties having members in a cabinet, but probably not. Certainly in Ontario, the idea was to have a, a coalition government that had two parties, but the Conservative Party would basically have the whip head, even though it only had one-fifth of the seats. I mean, these were crazy ideas.
2: So how close did did that one-party kind of authoritarian ambition come, in, come to being realized?
1: In Ontario, very close. In Ontario, he actually had a deal between Mitchell Hepburn and Earl Rowe, who was the leader of the uh, Provincial Conservative Party, to form a coalition government where Rowe, whose party was the uh, opposition, and Hepburn had a majority government, but Rowe was going to be premier, and Mitch would have five or six portfolios, and the liberals would secretly finance the conservatives in the next election. This is a completely harebrained scheme. It sounded great to those two guys when people in Ottawa, and the political party, especially the conservative party, found out about it. They basically took Roe and they you know, shook some brains into his head by holding him upside down, and then he came back and denied it all happened. But it did happen. And I do think that's one of the reasons why Canadians are very suspicious of coalition governments because of the talk by McCullough and his friends through the depression of having sort of one party or, I mean, back then the liberals and conservatives, they were basically the same party anyway, the ins and outs. They were going to exclude everybody else and they were just going to have this group of technocrats and wealthy people just basically run the state. Having the power of government, I mean, that's the sort of sports side of things, how to get power. But then what do you do with that power and how do you use it to help people? And the people who needed help were saying, well, okay, we get all this stuff about bickering, but how are you going to get me a job? How are you going to deal with the fact that we might be coming into a war? And how do we prepare for that? Because when McCullough was doing his big populist push, there had been the Czechoslovak crisis of 1938, and it was fairly obvious that we were heading into war. And he couldn't really give any kind of coherent answers. And I think that when you look at populism now, you see the same thing. You see the questions are always being raised and the questions are, are interesting and sometimes they're important, but the answers that come out are worthless and eventually people walk away from populism for that reason. For a century the Canadian labour movement had been a pale shadow of the U.S. campaign for workers' rights. In small cities like the McCullough hometown of London, activists like George McCullough Sr. were blackballed. Every year, when the assembly lines were retooled for the next model year's cars, most hourly employees were laid off, and only the loyal ones were called back. The Depression made things even worse. GM cut wages of the 3,700 workers in its Oshawa plant five times between 1932 and 1937 and sped up the production line.
2: Another um, aspect of of his political thinking was that uh, he was vehemently anti-union. And you cite the example of a strike at GM in, in Oshawa, Ontario. How did he respond to that strike?
1: He basically came out from behind the curtain and tried to run the government of Ontario. And he forced out two of the most important members of the Hepburn cabinet. He used the Globe and Mail as the mouthpiece for the company, for General Motors. This is the big Oshawa strike. And he did everything he could to to prevent a, a collective agreement from happening between the union and the company who actually both sides really could have come to an agreement much quicker if George McCullough hadn't been fighting the union. And even that was a proxy battle because really what he wanted was to keep unions out of Ontario period. And especially out of the mines, because it was the gold mining interests. One particular miner who had put up the money for him to buy the globe and the mail and empire. And those guys did not want unions in their mines.
2: Now, of course, his own father was a union organizer, and you know I don't want to reduce this to, to purely eatable terms. But it, it, it doesn't it look kind of eatable as though he's symbolically eliminating his father?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's this this is undercurrent through the book of, his father, is a black hole character. In other words, light goes into this character. He's all through the book until he he dies where he's not talked about by McCullough, but he's so important to the story that you can sort of tell he's there. Now, this may not make any sense until you read the book, but McCullough never talks about his father. He's so much of a non-person that he becomes important simply because of how hard McCullough works to not talk about him. Hmm. He's always talking about his mother. And when his mother dies in 1939, he's got the Queen of England praying for her. And, when she dies, he has her body carted up to Toronto from London, and he makes all of the politicians in Canada who count for anything show up to the funeral. So the prime minister's there, a couple of former prime ministers. He's got the premier in his cabinet. He's got the mayor of Toronto. He's got everybody who counts politically, and then there's all kinds of rich people who's, who I don't understand are there giving her the send-off. None of them knew her, wouldn't know her from Adam. And then they buried her in Mount Pleasant Cemetery. When the father dies, there's like an inch-long death notice in the paper, and they plug him into the ground in London. They don't even bury him next to his wife. There's no no funeral, no arm-twisting, no nothing. And, uh, yeah, that Edipulc thing is a big deal, I think, in McCullough's psyche. Now, how much of that has to do with forming his psychological problems, I don't know. And we'll probably never know because so much— of that has been taken off the table. Yes. But yeah, I think you bang on on that. There's definitely a reaction politically to his father, psychologically to his father, and it comes up over and over again. There's a, this really weird thing about mid-Canadian men of power with, with the whole mummy thing, with uh, Mackenzie King too, and, and there are others who are obsessed with their mothers uh, to the point where it's downright strange, frankly. McCullough might claim the paper had no sacred cows, but at least when it came to unions, it had created a golden calf.
2: He was effectively an authoritarian, yet he didn't seem to embrace the fascism and the anti-Semitism that were that were on the rise in Germany and in Italy and and even here in Canada for for that matter. Why do you think not?
1: Yeah, I think I think and I don't like to do this normally because I don't like to make it look like I'm justifying or explaining fascism in any way other than in a negative way. But I think what McCullough saw uh, was the sort of the business side of of authoritarianism as as some sort of efficiency thing, but all the other stuff, the anti-Semitism, the militarism. That sort of thing, he he did buy into. So this was a guy who didn't believe in political democracy, but you know employed Jewish reporters on the on the Globe and Mail at a time when it was very hard for a, a Jewish person in Toronto to get a hand at all. Um, who employed an openly lesbian sports reporter at the Globe and Mail, who did a lot of rather kind things for poor people and was not a, a sort of class snob in a way your sort of typical fascist would be. McCullough did not try to put distance between his employees and himself. On most weeknights, he haunted the Globe and Mills cafeteria rather than go home to his wife and kids in Thornhill. For many staffers, these cafeteria sessions were a valued perk of the job, McCullough would come into the cafeteria after the first edition was off to conduct small seminars over coffee. Sometimes he'd lurk and listen to people talking at different tables, trying to find the best argument to jump into. He knew just about everyone on staff by their first name, and he knew their problems. If one of them was bereaved, they got a handwritten sympathy letter. If an employee or spouse couldn't cover a medical bill, McCullough might pay it from his own checkbook. So I think in those ways, he had kind of divided fascism up into its economic side and and, and the rest of the stuff, and bought into that in a rather simplistic way, not understanding that, that actually the sort of whole militarism and racism and sexism and other negative aspects of fascism are always part of the same thing. And if you have that kind of political fascism, you are still going to get all the rest of it. because one of the roles of government is to protect the people from the kind of exploitation that fascists do to them.
2: So I just want to turn a little bit to um, sort of the the personal, very personal side of, of George McCullough. George McCullough had what we'd now call a mental illness. What was he suffering from?
1: He was at least suffering from severe recurring depression. Now, it's quite likely he was bipolar. There are times in his life where he shows what used to be called a manic side, um, and then the the depressive side would come later, and it was quite crippling to him. It was a disease that shaped his life, and I think in a way caused him to seek that kind of power that he had, partly as self-protection. Bipolar disorder tends to manifest when a person is in their mid-twenties, so it hit him when he was trudging those backwood roads. The stigma of mental illness was lethal to careers and social lives through most of the twentieth century, so McCullough had to cope with it on his own.
2: How do we know that he had this illness?
1: It was uh, there were people who worked with him near the end in the latter years of his life, like Richard Doyle, who became a senator. It was a friend of mine in Ottawa until he passed a few years back who, who wrote about his ups and downs. But the real key to understanding what was going on was his choice of psychiatrist. So he went out and he found the psychiatrist, capital V on the psychiatrist who handled people who were bipolar and he found this fellow in New York, and he his method of psychiatry was exactly what George McCullough thought he needed to be able to function as as George McCullough. So this Dr. Kennedy was a a doctor who didn't believe in Freudianism, didn't believe in what we just talked about with the Oedipal stuff. He believed that the brain was basically a machine, that it worked uh, on chemistry, and if you had a severe depressive episode because you were I'm doing air quotes, you manic depressive. You reset the brain with electronic convulsive therapy. So McCullough would go down to New York. He had a, a secret apartment down there, mm. go for shock treatments and come back in, in a matter of days. So he wasn't missed or anything. And this was brutal for him, but it was the only way he could survive in, in the, Atmosphere of Toronto back then, where any kind of sign of mental illness was seen as a sign of um, spiritual, personal uh, failure.
2: He also self medicated.
1: I don't think he self medicated as much as people thought. Um, I think they thought that he was a drunk because he uh, had some of the strangeness that came with his disease. And um, in fact, he. Was more likely to have been um, a person who didn't drink at all from from his 30s onwards, and and was probably an AA, an Alcoholics Anonymous colleague to to several of the other people who show up in the book. He did he didn't self medicate, and and people tried to get him to. So people would say to him, George, you know, you get moody, you're up, you're down, you know, maybe you should just have a drink you know, and it was much more serious than that. He didn't, he didn't use any other drugs as far as I know. And, uh, and, but he did, he did have these, these health collapses that, that would send him, you know, scuttling to New York. That was, I think one of the reasons why he had a private plane even. I think a lot of what he did was building walls around himself to protect himself from the stigma of his mental illness and to protect, People from even knowing about the mental. Illness. So even looking at where he lived, you know, outside of the city, uh, on a farm where you know people weren't dropping in too much, uh, and 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 living this life of, of being on the move all the time allowed him to to disguise it. Plus, accumulating that wealth gave him the power to fend off the kind of things that would happen to a person who would be seen as insane at the time. So it all it all kind of ties together into the making of the man. And in that way, I really feel for him because, you know, I've had depression in my life. I've had anxiety um, issues in my life while working on the newspapers. And I, and I know that feeling of that there's nobody to turn to. So how do you make it work? And, and he figured out a way that until he was 47 years old, it was he was able to make it work and that he just couldn't do that anymore. McCullough died, almost certainly by suicide, after years of silent suffering and brutal psychiatric treatments. The stigma of his death is one of the reasons you probably never heard of him. Soon after the massive crowds dispersed from his wake and his funeral, George McCullough's name was removed from the masthead of the newspapers he owned. His picture came down from the wall of the Globe and Mail's boardroom. Some years later, his widow, angry and bitter, burned all of his papers, leaving scorched earth for any biographer who tried to tell McCullough's story.
2: You suspect that he killed himself. What do you think got him there?
1: Uh, Two things happened that I think really finished him. One was Dr. Kennedy died, so he no longer had the psychiatrist who could treat him. Dr. Kennedy was a real rogue Among psychiatrists, there were very few people who would have just done these ECTs on a guy like McCullough without having other therapy. So I think that was a big part of it. Uh, Another thing was his his friend and money man, his sort of angel investor, died around the same time. I think those two things threw him for a big loop. And uh, he just couldn't get through the summer of of 52. He just... just, uh, Tried he'd he aged. People looked at him, and he was he was forty seven, and people thought he looked seventy. He shuffled around, and he just burned out, and he had no way of getting back on his feet. He had no way of getting any sort of treatment that he that he would accept, and so he only saw one way out.
2: So, how is it that he was forgotten as part of the story of the Globe and Mail?
1: First of all, there was the stigma of the suicide, and even though it wasn't reported, certainly people knew about it. And then the Globe and Mail was sold. It was sold to a a family in Montreal who didn't know McCullough and didn't care about McCullough and, and didn't want the stigma. So that really conspired against him in terms of the Globe and Mail. With the Telegram, John Bassett bought it and was setting up a TV station and Channel 9 in Toronto, and so there were a lot of reasons for people to put George McCullough behind them and not have their media properties wear the stigma of McCullough. And it was such a, a good job of sort of cleansing uh, McCullough, and also there were sort of two veins of thought about him. One was that he was a, this mad genius who who died young by suicide, and the other was that he was just kind of a screwball. And none of those sort of worked to keep his memory alive. By the late 1950s, there were just people who just didn't want to know about him anymore, just didn't want to talk about him. His wife um, had married George Drew, who was his best friend, though I think George Drew was a bit of a frenemy, really. Uh, George Drew kept a lot of dirt on George McCullough, which I was able to find in the archives. And as the newspaper changed ownership several times, there were fewer and fewer people who, who understood who McCullough even was, to the point where... Paul Palango, who's a, a writer in Nova Scotia, was telling me that he'd actually seen this painting of McCullough basically in a locker room of the old Globe and Mail building in Toronto. And then when I started looking for it, it was found and it was given to Anne McCullough, who's George McCullough's surviving child. So that was part of it. And then what really cinches it is George McCullough's wife burned his papers. And that was a really spiteful thing to do. There were people who who wanted to write. Two people had taken a shot at this book. And John Saywell, who was a history prof at York University, actually had the papers and then gave the papers back to McCullough's wife, and then she burned them. That's the story that I got. And she was she was angry still after all those years about George McCullough's death. And there's a lot of cleavage in that family still. You know, George McCullough left descendants and... and um, about whether he was sort of a good person or a bad person, or whether the the mother was good or evil for doing this. But basically between the fact that media have no memory anyway, there were good reasons for media to forget about George McCullough, Mrs. McCullough destroying the papers all conspired to just erase George McCullough from history. Uh, and that's what happened, um, and I just came across him by a fluke. I was, I was working on another project and he just kept popping up and going through uh, um, censorship records from the second world war. Who is this guy? You know, and finding like maybe a line here and a line there in books, but, but no description of, 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 of who he was. And he, and he was terrifying to the press censors in the second world war. And yet, you know, he'd be mentioned in books about Hepburn or books about Drew or whatever, but really, uh, He needed a biography of his own because he was obviously a fascinating person. People who know about this project invariably ask me if there's some kind of moral to the story. I'd say there is. McCullough's media power still exists, but not in newspapers. It lies in the hands of foreigners who, to be blunt, don't give a damn about Canada, other than ensuring our governments bail out these vulture corporations and turn a blind eye to their pillaging.
2: You've spent years researching this book. What is it that you want us to take away? What is it that you're trying to do with this book?
1: Okay, two things. One is I want to entertain people with the story of this amazing man. And the second thing, and it came up later in the process, was I want to show how history rhymes. You know, it doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And the times of George McCullough are here now in in the populist movements that we see, in the simplistic answers that we see to vexing questions, and in the kind of media moguls that we see. So I I think there's a lot of warning and a lot of just, oh my God, I can't believe this guy did this, aspects to, to the story.
2: One final thing, Mark. If George McCullough walked through the door right now and sat opposite you, what's the one thing above all that you'd most want to ask or say to him?
1: I think I'd probably ask him about his dad. I really wonder about the childhood dynamics of him. And I'd also say, like, did you ever think there were any other ways of coping with the disease that you had? Did you ever considered doing anything else other than these very invasive treatments that I think wore him down, burned him out, and killed him. Those are the two things I'd ask him.
2: Do you feel some sympathy for the man?
1: Yeah, I've got a lot of sympathy for him. I mean, I'm not sure he would have been my friend. I don't think he would have liked me that much. I'm not a sporty guy. I don't care about horses. I don't care about money particularly, or I wouldn't be doing this. I don't think we would have got along that well, but I also find him so intriguing. I find that, I guess I'm a student of people. I've been that all my life. And to see this person make these choices and do these things and leave a legacy that with its ups and downs is still pretty cool and still survives. That's somebody that I wouldn't say have a drink with because he wasn't, he wasn't a drinker neither am I, but just somebody I would love to spend an evening talking to, but then get rid of him probably pretty fast. <laughs>
2: Mark, thank you for telling us his story. Well, thank you. You've been listening to my interview with historian and journalist Mark Bury. His biography of George McCullough is titled Big Men Fear Me. This episode was produced by Greg Kelly and Annie Bender. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The web producer of Ideas is Lisa Ayuso. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed.
0: You may think that people in the public eye have tougher hides than you, but it is not so. They may adopt a certain philosophy towards life in which they appear unconcerned as to how they are portrayed before their fellow men. But even if they have tough hinds, it is true to say that their wives and children are no less sensitive than other wives and children. No matter how tough an exterior any public man may cultivate, he would rather be liked and respected by his fellow citizens than anything else.